Hi everyone, welcome here for part two of our series, New Creation, God's Vision for Humanity. And I want to ask you a question to start this message today, and that is, is your view of the end times harming you? Okay, let that question sit for a second. Is your view of the end times harming you? Is your view of the end times keeping you, okay, from fulfilling the mandate that God has given us as believers and as a church? Here's what I know about the end times, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about this in the Bible. Here's what I know about the end times. We can't properly know what we're, what God's calling us to do today if we don't know where we're supposed to be going. And if we have a wrong view of where we're supposed to be going, we're going to get it wrong what we're supposed to be doing today. Okay? So I want to introduce you to start this message. I want to introduce to you a big theological word. So I'm going to teach you a new theological word, and it's the word eschatology. Okay? Maybe you want to maybe you want to say that that word out loud wherever you are right now watching this sermon, eschatology. Okay? Eschatology is a big theological word. It just basically means the study of the end, the study of last things, okay? It's the biblical study of last things. Now, um, there's a difference between eschatology, okay, the study of last things, what the Bible, this biblical subject of eschatology, and what we as modern North American evangelicals have co come to call end times, okay? That phrase, end times, uh, has come to have some connotations that are a little different than when we talk about the biblical subject of eschatology. And here's the problem with that, okay? When we talk about end times, we tend to think of a very narrow a very narrow group of subjects that is just a small piece of the overall pie of what the biblical subject of eschatology is about. Most of us, and this is a this is a modern phenomenon, most of us modern evangelicals going back 70, 80, 100 years here in North America, when we think of the phrase end times, we tend to think of a very narrow group of topics such as things like the Antichrist a seven-year tribulation, uh, the rapture, okay? We tend to think of very, you know, scary world events, earthquakes and persecution and, and disease and all those sorts of things. That's when we think of the, the phrase end times, that will, that's what we think of. But the thing you have to understand today is that the biblical subject of eschatology is much, much bigger than what we've come to see as end times, the biblical subject of eschatology is this, actually is a huge topic in scripture that includes things, more important topics like the resurrection, new creation, which is what this whole series is about, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Adam, all these sorts of things, God's defeating, ultimate defeating of sin and death. The biblical subject of eschatology is a huge subject compared to what we as evangelicals have called have come to call the end times which is a much smaller subject eschatology deals with the the study of God's whole plan for eternity what we as evangelicals have come to call end times is referring to some tiny period of time in the future just before uh, Jesus returns now it's not that it's bad okay so but I want to show you this because if we have a wrong view of the last things if we have a if we don't have a complete view of this biblical study of last things, eschatology, we're actually going to get our mission and calling now incorrect. And so some of this overemphasis on the narrow, the narrow subject of end times, which is there in the Bible, 
but losing out on the much huger subject of eschatology, last things, resurrection, new heavens, new earth, we're actually going to get our calling in the present wrong. So it's not that it's bad to talk about the end times. It's not that it's bad to talk about a rapture. It's not that it's bad to talk about a tribulation or an antichrist. But here's the thing we need to know. I'm going to put this up on, on, on PowerPoint. The Bible is less clear about those things. The Bible is less clear about those things than many of us as modern North American evangelicals have been led to believe. The Bible is less clear about the rapture, the Antichrist, and a seven-year tribulation than many of us North American uh, Christians have come to believe. And I want to show you this. So I'm gonna, in the first part of this message, I want to show you how what we've come to view as end times is it's, it's not a non-existent topic. It is a topic in Scripture, but it's a much smaller topic as part of a much more important topic of eschatology and what God is going to do in eternity. That applies to how we're supposed to live today. But let me just show you that our view of the end times has become too narrow and that some of the things that we make a big deal of are actually not that big of a deal or not that clear in scripture. For example, the rapture, okay? You know, for the last 70 or 80 years, Particularly North American evangelicals have spent millions of dollars writing books and making movies and having arguments about the rapture. And you would think from all of that busyness over the topic that the rapture would be a huge topic in scripture. But did you know that the word rapture actually only appears once in the entire Bible? The word rapture is a Latin word. It actually comes from the, from the Latin. It means to be caught up. Okay, it's not even in the original Greek because the original Greek word is harpezo. But here we look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. And Paul says this, then we who are alive, who are left, will be in the English caught up from the Greek harpezo. In the Latin, rapio. That's, that's literally the one place in the Bible, in the, in the Catholic Bible in the 5th century, the Latin Vulgate. They translated that word in Latin, the rapio, that's rapture, that's a Latin word. And that's the literally the one place that's used in the entire New Testament to describe this event of being caught up with Jesus in the air, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, okay? So this is the only place in the Bible where that idea is explicitly talked about in that way. Now, the Bible talks lots about resurrection, lots and lots and lots about resurrection. But this idea of rapture being caught up with the Lord in the air that, you know, Christians have made such a huge deal of is actually, and again, it's not that it's bad to talk about rapture. You know, we see this verse here about being caught up with Jesus. It's just that this verse, this is a very small subject in, in Scripture, and it isn't, there isn't a ton of detail here, okay? Yeah, we've made this a huge part of, you know, when we think of, rather than thinking of this huge topic of eschatology, that God's going to make everything new, that the new heavens and the new earth and the new Adam and the, and the new creation, all that, which is a huge topic, and we've taken that subject and we've said the rapture, and we've made the rapture this huge thing, when it isn't a big thing in Scripture. And then, of course, there's this huge, you know, just to pick one more here, I just want to spend a little bit of time here just to show you that what we traditionally think of as end times is a much smaller, less clear topic in Scripture than we've been led to believe. What about the Antichrist? Okay? An another thing that Christians, you know, we talk about when we talk about the end times, we think of this, this Antichrist. Um, and we think it must be a huge topic in Scripture. Well, did you know that the, the phrase, the term Antichrist is used only three times in all of Scripture? By the way, 
None of those times, zero, occur in Revelation. Did you know that? The word Antichrist does not, the name, the title Antichrist does not appear even once in Scripture. I mean, in, in Revelation, in every, it appears three times, in twice in 1 John and once in 2 John. That's the only place in all Scripture. Let me just show you a couple of those right now, and, then, and let me just show you some things, okay? 1 John verse 2, 18, John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, two things I want you to notice there. First of all, John is speaking, this is like, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. He's speaking to a first century audience. And the Apostle John says, uh, not that there, he's not speaking of the Antichrist as some figure in the future. I want you, that's the first thing I want you to notice. Because evangelicals today, we, we, we're obsessed with, you know, tribulation, rapture, Antichrist, some figure in the future. John, the Apostle John is writing about the Antichrist 2,000 years ago, and he's not talking about a, a, some figure in the future. He's talking about Antichrist in his day already. And he says, there's not just one, there's many. He says, so now many Antichrists have come. And then he has this stunning statement. Look at there in the last line there, verse 18. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John says, you know, you know what that is? The last hour is referring to the, the end times, the last hour before Jesus returns again. John says, this is how we know we're living in the last hour, the end times. John's writing this almost 2,000 years ago. He says, and the reason we know is because many antichrists have already come. Okay, he's talking about the end times here in a very different way than how modern North American evangelicals have come to talk of it as something in the future, a seven-year period of time just before Jesus returns. Okay, uh, four verses later, John defines the Antichrist even more definitively. And again, this the reason this is important is because if we have a wrong view of the end times, we're going to get it, we're going to get our mission in life now wrong. That's why this is important. So four verses later, John defines what the Antichrist is. He says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Right there, John defines for us in Scripture, the inspired Word of God, what the Antichrist spirit is. And it's anyone who denies that Jesus is God or who denies that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he also became man, that he's the way of salvation. Okay, one more verse to show you, also from John, because he's the only one who uses this terminology, 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So anyone who denies that Jesus is God or that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, the one who came, who is the way of salvation, that is the Antichrist spirit. Okay, that is the Antichrist spirit. Now, and so I'm going to put that up on power, PowerPoint, just from these passages. The Antichrist spirit deceives people about Jesus in one of three ways, or all of these ways, one or more of these ways. One thing the Antichrist spirit says is Jesus is not God. That's an Antichrist spirit. Uh, Antichrist spirit says God did not take on flesh to become fully human. So if you deny that Jesus is God, that's Antichrist spirit. If you deny that Jesus became fully human, that God became fully human, that's Antichrist spirit. The Antichrist spirit says Jesus is not the Messiah, the only way of salvation. Now, by the way, I want to just stop. Quick rabbit trail right here, right now. Because again, our view of the end times is going to affect how we live now. This, by the way, is what a false teacher is. Did you know that? This is what a false teacher is. So many Christians today are afraid of being deceived by a false teacher, okay? 
What is a false teacher? A false teacher is someone who leads people away from Jesus. Okay, this is really important. It's not, a false teacher is not just some Christian who disagrees with you. That's not a false teacher. Do you know how many denominations there are, Christian denominations there are in the world? I mean, there literally, it's hundreds and hundreds, must be into the thousands. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's huge. Okay, there are many, many different denominations of Christians. There are many different expressions of Christianity. We can all agree that Jesus is God, that he is God in the flesh, he's fully man, and that he died for our sins and is the only way of salvation, rose from the dead. All of us as Christians can agree on that. On pretty much everything else, we can disagree. That doesn't make another Christian brother or sister a false teacher. Just because they disagree with me, that's not a false teacher. A false teacher is not a teacher who's wrong about some bit of theology. Did you know that? Because we're all wrong. Not a single one of you watching this sermon right now has got all your theology right. And guess what? As you're listening to me right now, you have to know, I do not have all of my theology correct yet. Not until we see Jesus in person. Nobody on earth has all of their theology correct. So you can have your theology wrong. You can teach wrong theology. You can teach theology that other Christians disagree with. But so long as you believe, okay, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died and rose again, you're not a false teacher. As long as you're not leading people away from salvation in Jesus Christ alone, you're not a false teacher, okay? Because that's what a false teacher is. John defines the Antichrist spirit there in 1st and second, John, we have to have a lot more grace for each other. And yes, there are things where I believe there are Christians who are wrong, very seriously wrong about important bits of theology. But even there, we need to have charity. Such a person is not a false teacher. If, they're, if they still are leading people to salvation in Jesus, they might even be seriously wrong about some theology, but they're not a false teacher. Now I want to show you some very important New Testament theology about the end times. And this is going to tie in to God's vision statement and mission statement for your life today. Okay? Um, um, and this is that important bit of New Testament theology is that we are already in the end times. So many of us as Christians, we're looking forward to some little blip in the future. At some point in the future, the end times are going to come. According to the New Testament authors, according to New Testament theology, we are already in the end times today. Look at, I'm going to go back to 1 John 2 and then I'll show you some other ones. Look at John, what I just showed you, children. It is the last hour. It is the last hour, he's saying, before Jesus returns. We're in this last period of time. He's saying that already 2,000 years ago. This is, this is just phraseology for end times. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is all over the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21, the Apostle Peter says this. Speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. Okay, that phrase, last times, is literally just another way of saying end times. Last times, end times, it's the same thing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, said your faith and hope are in Jesus. Literally what Peter is saying here is that when Jesus manifested himself, was born of the Virgin Mary, died on the cross and rose from the grave, that was him being made manifest in the last times. Jesus' appearance here on earth the first time kicked off what the Bible says are the last times, the end times. And I'm going to prove this to you with one last passage. And I could show you a bunch of other ones in the New Testament. But let me take you to Peter's big sermon 
on the day of Pentecost, okay, Acts chapter 2, you know, this, this very famous passage of scripture, the Holy Spirit has just fallen. So Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And now on the day of Pentecost, he, the Holy Spirit falls on the believers in Jerusalem and they speak in other tongues so that people can understand them in other languages as they preach the gospel, okay? And look at what now Peter preaches a message on Pentecost that many of us, we just miss this part. He preaches a powerful, powerful message. Look what he says. And he's explaining now what they're experiencing because they're looking around. Well, how are people speaking in tongues? What's happening right now? And he explains it this way. He says, but this, speaking of what's just happened, the Holy Spirit falling on them. They're speaking in tongues. The day of Pentecost, there was a sound like a rushing wind. But this, this Holy Spirit thing that's happening is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And now he's going to quote one of the most, in at least in that time period, one of the most famous end times passages in the whole Old Testament scripture. So, which is a very weird thing to quote because you think that, you don't quote that until, you know, those things, the tribulation, the rapture, the, the antichrist, those things, those code words that we modern evangelicals have. But Peter uses that to describe what they were going through on Pentecost. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And now he's going to, he's going to quote a very famous end time prophecy it's, this is the prophecy he quotes from Joel. And in the last days, so he's saying what we're living in, what you're experiencing right now is the beginning of the last days. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream, men shall dream dreams. And I will show, and again, these are, this is classic, you know, end times prof, prophetic text. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, takes that passage and applies it to what the believers just experienced in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Think about that for just a moment. Okay? While I take a sip of coffee. Okay? Astonishing. Peter says, we're in the last days. The Holy Spirit falling on the church kicked off the end times, this whole time from Jesus rising from the grave and the Holy Spirit falling on the church until Jesus returns the second time. That whole period of the now but not yet is what is known scripturally as the last days, the last hour, the end times. Okay? I'm going to put that up on screen so you can make a note if you want to. New Testament theology, the end times started after Jesus rose from the grave, thus we are already in the end times, which means that persecuted Christians are already in the tribulation. The tribulation is not some just some little period of time in the future at some point. Christians around the world who are in persecution are already in tribulation. That's what the Bible is teaching us. We're already in the end times. We're already in the last days, okay? Now, again, and I'm going to show you this is really important because this isn't an end time series. This is a new creation series. But I have to talk about this in order for you to understand the mandate on your life for today of new creation. But I know there's, there's just one more... You know, well, there's many objections. We could spend several hours just on this topic. But one of the objections is, well, isn't the whole book of Revelation about the future seven-year tribulation? Like, isn't the, like, that's the whole book of Revelation is about that. And the answer is no. Did you know that nowhere in the book of Revelation does the book of Revelation say that it is about a seven-year period called the tribulation? That language is used nowhere. The, the book of Revelation does not talk about a seven-year period. The, bo the book of Revelation does not talk about a separate period of time called a seven-year tribulation. Okay? In fact, if we read 
the introduction to the book of Revelation, we're going to see what the book of Revelation is about. And here's what the book of Revelation itself says about itself. Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay? The book of Revelation was, it was not written about events that were thousands of years in the future for those first people who, who were receiving it. John's writing to these people and he's saying, this is about things that are soon to take place. Okay? The, the book of Revelation had, just like every other book of the Bible, had to be applicable to the first people who received it. Okay? God's not writing to people 2,000 years ago about events that have nothing to do with their lives. Okay? He goes on to say this in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. In other words, the people in the first century who received the book of Revelation were supposed to obey it. They were meant to obey it. This isn't just some disconnected book of prophecy about things thousands of years in advance. This was a book for the first century believers to listen to and apply in their day. Now look at what it says. For the time is near. Okay? The, the, the events of Re the Revelation is not talking about things thousands of years in the future to those people. It's talking about things that were soon and near. Now, yes, the book of Revelation does have some things right near the end that talk about things that haven't happened yet. The new heaven, you know, the ultimate uh, eschatology, say last things, that when the new Jerusalem will come down to earth and God will do away with death and pain and suffering, Revelation 21 and 22. Beautiful, wonderful, awesome, and God's going to destroy the wicked systems of the world and some of those things. But Revelation was meant to be applied in its day and it has was meant to be applicable to every Christian generation since. Okay, so um, we could do a whole, you know, series about, about that. And I know what some of you are saying right now. Are you saying that all of our end times teaching up to now has been totally wrong? And the answer is no, that's not what I'm saying. My point is that we actually need to hold our end time, some of the end time teaching, some of the stuff, you know, that I've myself have been on a journey coming out of out of some of, you know, my own theological roots and my own theological history. And we, what I come to realize, very important, what so many, you know, the, the, the Christian church over the last 2,000 years has done a lot of deep thinking about revelation. And when we open up our minds and we come out of just our one little stream of thinking, we realize that there is a lot more ways to understand some of these things than some of us in North America have thought. Now, am I saying that all of our end times teaching is wrong? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need to hold that stuff a lot more loosely. Hold it a lot more loosely. That's what I'm saying in the first part of this message. I'm not saying it's bad to talk about the rapture ever or it's bad to talk about an antichrist in the future, a seven-year tribulation. I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is we need to hold those things a lot more loosely, okay? Um... And why, and by the way, and just so, you know, some of you are going, oh, I'm so confused. What do I think about any of this stuff? Here's what you can be sure of. Here's what you can be sure of when it comes to end times. Number one, Jesus is going to come back and defeat all sin and death wickedness. That is assured. Here's what you can also be assured of. We are already in end times. We are already going through tribulation, okay? These are all very true. And the Antichrist spirit is already at work in the world. That's all very clear from the New Testament, okay? You don't have to be, you can be totally confident about those points. But in the meantime, this is why this is important, is if we get too attached to some of our end times, modern end times traditions, 
where we become obsessed with a little period of time in the future, I'm going to tell you why it is potentially uh, harmful to us as individuals, as Christians, but also the church as a whole. And that is this, because it, what it can breed in, in us as believers is a sense of fatalism. A sense of fatalism begins to creep in that everything's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And then event, then Jesus, and it, it's just going to get worse anyway. And so why, why should we bother? I mean, let's try and get as many people saved as possible. But why should we bother trying to make the world a better place if it's all just going to burn anyway? And so it can create this like almost hunker down mentality for some Christians where it's just like, we're just going to hunker down and wait things out and survive until Jesus returns. And did you know that that is not God's vision for the church or for your life? And by the way, if we spend, what happens if we spend our whole generation hunkered down and then Jesus doesn't come back in our generation? We've just wasted a generation. But God has a vision for us that's way bigger than just hunker down and survive and try to make it to the end. Look at Jesus' city on a hill vision speech, Matthew chapter 5. We looked at this briefly last week, but I'm going to keep coming back to it. This is a vision statement from Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. Notice the light of the world. He does not say you are a light of the world, like there's other options. Well, if you Christians aren't a light, at least I've got options B, C, and D. No, no, no. That's why the church is on the earth. You and me are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus has a mission and a vision from the, for the church. And it does not involve fatalism where we hunker down and just try to survive because things are because we believe things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until the end. And we just have to survive until the end. That is not Jesus' vision for you. Your the Jesus' vision for you, for me, and for us together as a believer is to go out into his creation and flood the earth with good works in his name. Not just good works, but also not just his name. Good works in his name is what he's calling us to, to be a city on a hill. And this is where, okay, so remember I said before, end times is sort of this topic that has gotten really, really narrow. And we've narrowed it down to, you know, things like rapture and tribulation and antichrist. And we've narrowed it down. But eschatology, this big theological word that means the study of last things is so much bigger. Let me now look at, at, at let's look at eschatology now and this important theology of resurrection and the new Adam. And what does that mean for you and me today? And if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter about eschatology, about God's plans for eternity. And it's a whole chapter about resurrection, okay? And in this chapter, Paul, in his discussion about resurrection, talks about Jesus as a new Adam. And this has some big implications for you and me. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And we only have time to take a couple of small excerpts. But I'd encourage you to read the whole, the whole chapter this week at home. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Paul says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, that's talking about Genesis, Adam. Okay, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So this whole chapter is going to be drawing many parallels back into Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Okay, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So clearly here, the first Adam is Genesis Adam. The last Adam, Jesus, is somehow 
Adam, okay? That has implications for you and me, okay? Now, I just wanna make a, you know, one other thing I need to say here. When it says here that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, don't put your modern North Evangelical, you know, North American evangelical uh, biases into that. And when, because when we think of spirit, we think of something that's not physical, like not a physical body. It's a, a spirit is, you know, something with wings in the air, in the clouds, playing a harp. That is not what he's saying here. All throughout 1 Corinthians 15, when he says spirit, what he's meaning, he's contrasting that with natural. For him, a natural body is the body we all have right now, a body that is subject to sin and death and disease. And for Paul, then a spirit body is not a body that isn't physical. Jesus' resurrection body was physical. His disciples, after he rose from the dead, could touch him. They could hold him. Uh, he ate with them. He had a very physical body. He had scars. And that's a, another thing I want to touch on in this series yet. There was continuity between his, his first body and his, and his original body and his resurrection body. But here, the, the important point is that Jesus is called the last Adam. Now, why is it important that Paul compares Jesus to Adam? Again, it goes to the core of Jesus's mission and the calling on our lives. Jesus has come to start a new humanity. He's not rescuing us from being human. He's not turning us into something else that we weren't. He's not turning us into angels. The fact that Jesus is a new Adam means that he's calling us to a new kind of humanity. Okay, we go, we'll, we'll skip a verse again just for time's sake. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, that's Adam, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven, okay? So then, again, the whole point of this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is resurrection. What is Paul arguing about here? He's arguing is whoever you come from, that's who you inherit your traits from. So if you come from Adam, from Adam you get sickness, sin, and disease. But if you are from Jesus, then from Jesus, ultimately, we get resurrection. We get eternal life. We get salvation. Okay? Now, again, by the way, when it says there, as was the man of dust, one of the things you have to understand, and by the way, this also makes more sense of, of Genesis 2, when God creates Adam out of dust, but you have to realize that throughout Scripture, when Paul talks about as, as the man of dust, he's not talking about our chemical composition. He's not, he's not talking about what we're made out of. Dust is a metaphor throughout scripture for something that is mortal and temporary. So the fact that we as human beings are made of dust isn't a comment about our chemical, uh, the chemical mixture of our bo physical bodies. The, the New Testament, Old Testament writers wouldn't have thought that way. It's a metaphor for the fact that human life is so short. We come along, we pass away. You know, human life is like grass, the psalmist says, okay? So the man of dust Adam, if you come from that, if you are part of Adam's family, um, then you, from that you get, he's a man of dust, he's a man of mortality, you receive mortality. But if you are a man of Jesus's family, then you get from him resurrection. You get eternal life. So that's why we need to be reborn. So this is the whole point. Jesus represents, so Adam represents humanity as it is now. Jesus represents the new creation humanity, which is why we as human beings need to be born again. The first time we were born, we were born into Adam's humanity. And from that, we inherited sin and death, mortality. But we need to be born again, not as angels, but as human beings. And the, the head of the new humanity is Jesus.
And from him, then we receive resurrection and immortality. Now, whichever family you're part of, that's who you're going to be like, as I just said. Next verse, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, all of this language is, you know, super rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. This is, you know, Paul, there are parallels here. Paul's talking about resurrection. He's comparing Adam and Jesus, the language, you know, the image of and some of these things and dust. It's all rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, why is that important? Genesis 1 and 2, well, and 3 give a, are the creation story of the universe and most importantly of humankind. And if we go to Genesis 1, at the end of Genesis 1, we're going to find God's mission statement. You know, every organization nowadays has to have a mission statement. What do you exist for? What are, what's your purpose for existing? Well, Genesis 1 gives us God's mission statement for humanity. What did he make human beings to do? It's right there in the Bible. Genesis 1, starting in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. There's that image language, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, okay? God loved creating human beings. It was God's joy to create us in the universe. And now we go on, and now here's the mission statement. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is about reigning and ruling. God made the universe because he's just so generous and creative. He can't stop himself almost from, from creating. So he makes this amazing universe, but he doesn't want to be in this universe by himself. And he doesn't just want to be a taskmaster. He wants to have partners in his creation. This is the God we serve. And so he creates human beings in his image. And he says, I want, I'm going to create this amazing, precious universe. And then I'm going to give this universe to you guys. And you guys are going to rule over. That's the mission for humanity. Humanity is God's special creation within his creation, created to rule over the creation as co-rulers with him. Notice that, reign and subdue, or subdue and dominion, okay? In ancient times, uh, a king would, you know, put statues, would sometimes put statues of himself throughout his realm because they didn't have phones or TVs or photographs to show people who's in charge to communicate to people who's in charge. So kings would put up statues of themselves called images. They put images throughout their kingdoms to remind people of who is the king, who's in charge of this country. And God does the same thing with his creation. In Genesis 1, he makes human beings in his image and he sends us out to rule on his behalf, to rule with him and to rule on his behalf in the creation, okay? That's God's mission for humans. You say, that's it? That's it. It's actually a very earthy calling. God made the universe, but he didn't, you know, in all of its beauty, he didn't, he didn't finish the job of organizing it. He left the universe untamed and wild. And he said, I want you human beings to go out and steward it, organize it, build cities, build farms, invent, create, get the most out of it, advance. That's the mission. That's why we exist. Okay? So important. But anyway, then in Genesis 3, though, big problem. God has this mission. He creates creation just for the joy of it. He creates humans to rule on his behalf and with him over that creation and make it an amazing place. 
But then we mess up. It's not just Adam, it's all of us. We mess up and we bring sin and brokenness and death into creation. And so the mission statement, the vision is marred. Instead of making the world an amazing place, human beings have made the world Well, there's still a lot of amazing and beauty there, but there's also a lot of pain and there's also a lot of darkness and a lot of evil. So the mission statement has been really broken and the vision has been marred and broken, okay? But this is where the the New Testament theology of Jesus as the new Adam comes in. So now Jesus comes. And as evangelicals, we're really good at this part. He comes and dies on a cross and rises from the dead and he fixes the sin problem. He says, I've forgiven you of your sins. Okay, and in the end, we're going to have a resurrection, but this is what we miss now, many of us as evangelicals. We think, okay, woohoo, Jesus saved us for the future when we go away to heaven. And that's, that's, he just did so much more than that. Because he's the new Adam, he is restoring us to the original mission. Okay, it's not just get us saved so we can go to heaven someday while the world burns all around us. He saved us from our sins, and then as the new Adam, He renews the creation mandate, the creation mission statement of Genesis 1. And now he says, now in my name, in my image, born again into this new humanity, go out and rule on my behalf. Go out into the world. Don't don't hunker down. Go out into the world and be a light on a hill. Go out into the world as believers in Jesus and start businesses in the name of Jesus. You know, even if you don't necessarily call that it that explicitly, but as an image of Jesus, it's like him having his image in that business that you run it with integrity and kindness and you provide work for people where they can take care of their families and you make the community where you are a better place through your product and through your service and all that sort of stuff. That is the mandate. You go out and you coach sports and you teach music. You don't hunker down and wait for the world to burn. You go out into the world and you flood the world with the good works of Jesus in the image of Jesus because he is the new Adam and we are in his image as the new humanity. This is why the New Testament repeatedly, when we want to talk about eschatology, not just end times, not just this narrow subject of end times and, you know, rapture, seven-year tribulation, antichrist, but eschatology, this whole complete story of eternity, what's God doing? Why does the New Testament talk over and over and over again about us in eternity doing what? Reigning with Jesus. We are not being saved just to go and sing and worship forever and ever, even though the singing and the worship is going to be amazing. I can hardly wait. The music and worship is going to be incredible. And I can hardly wait till we can meet in a building as Crossview Church and have music and worship in our services because that's awesome. But we're going to do so much more than that. The, the New Testament says we're going to reign with him. Let's, you know, so Genesis 1, I find this, this structure very fascinating for the entire Bible. You look at Genesis 1. And God gives us the mission statement. Go into all the world and subdue it and have dominion over it. Okay? And not in a violent, ugly way, but in a God-honoring way with kindness and integrity and peace and joy and love. That's Genesis 1. Guess what we see in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22? It's the book ends. In the first chapter, we have the vision statement. Go out in my name and be image bearers of mine and rule on my behalf. In Revelation 22, we see that in eternity, God's going to make that happen and we're going to fulfill that calling. Look at this, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of sun, they will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And look at this. And they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. We were made to reign. Now, don't get into your head, okay? Uh, I think we don't have the right picture. We think of reigning as, I'm going to have robes on me in, in eternity, and I'm going to sit on a throne with a scepter, and boy, are we all going to be sitting on thrones? Like, who's going to actually do the work? If we're all reigning with Jesus in, in eternity, and we're all just kings and queens, who's going to do the work? Because we're all just going to be sitting on thrones. There's going to be a couple of billion thrones up in heaven, and we're all just sitting on thrones reigning. Is that what it means to reign? No. It's not this cartoon picture of a king or queen sitting on a throne. Reigning in the Bible has this idea of going out into the world. Going out into the world to subdue and have dominion, but in God, in God's way, because we're his images. So we go out in his way to steward the earth responsibly, to organize things, to build productive farms and businesses and, and to play sports and to do some of those things. We're going to do some of those types of things in eternity for all of eternity. We're going to go and do the work on God's behalf of making the world a better place. That's the reigning and ruling. And that calling doesn't just start in the future. If Jesus is the new Adam, this is where you're, this is where we have to be so careful that our end times theology is not actually harming us, is not actually taken away from our vision. If our end times theology is causing us to hunker down, to withdraw, to just try to survive, then our end times theology is not taking into account the, the, the full biblical witness of the new Adam and the new humanity. Because the calling on your life is the moment you give your life to Christ, you are now born again into the new humanity, which means you have the mandate again to go out into all the world. And in the image of Jesus, in the image, his image, peace and joy and love, to go out and organize things and encourage people and build things and educate and, you know, heal the sick with medicine and... And, you know, to be doctors and nurses and teachers and in everything we do to be a city on a hill and a light for Jesus. Now, I know there are some questions here. I'm going to end this message with this because we could go hours and hours on this topic. But I know some people have questions, but what about judgment and wrath and God's justice against the wicked? Those things are coming as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit in our next message. Okay? The point is we are meant, we are not meant to be afraid all the time now. We are meant to take a risk to go out into the world and to be a light. And my prayer for you is that you will do that. I would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and I want to pray that over you today. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, you are not calling the church to hunker down and just survive. You are not calling the church just to pray and worship, although we love to do that and we need to do that. But you are calling us to go out into the world in your name and make it a better place. To teach music, to coach sports, to build homes, to employ people and provide for their families, to do medicine, to teach children, to make this world a better place all the while gladly announcing your name. We do these things in the name of Jesus. The new Adam, because we are part of his new humanity, the new human race.
Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen.